HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Cooking Issues, coming to you live on the Heritage Radio Network. Uh, today we're coming to you not on our usual day. Today we're coming to you on Monday from noon to 1245 instead of our usual Tuesdays. Next week we'll be back on Tuesday. Today's, uh, today's Cooking Issues is brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Uh, you know, you shop there. I, I shop there. We all know who they are. Uh, you know, they do, they do some good work. They try to do local stuff when they can. Whole Foods Market. There's one near you. Um, okay, so today we're in the uh, studio today with, of course, uh, Nastasha Lopez, Cooking Issues Hammer, and live special guest, uh, Dave Wondrich, award-winning author and uh, master of the inebriating beverage. Uh, hi, Dave. Thanks for coming in. Hi, Dave. Thanks for having me. <laughs> All right. Uh, but uh, Cooking Issues is the show where we answer your cooking questions. And today, I hope some of you call in with some drink-related questions because there's no better person to answer them than Dave Wondrich, uh, author of uh, Imbibe, uh, like several versions of the Esquire cocktail book, right? What else? What else he got here? Me- like a bazillion magazine articles? Yeah, uh, pretty much a metric bazillion at yeah. this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. like a cubic bazillion. Yeah. So... Uh, and right now you have a rare opportunity. You can ask any cocktail question you want, and we got you covered. Basically, you, get, you want a science question, you want a history question, you want a recipe question. Seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. That's seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. Colin will be here for the next forty five minutes. So before we uh, actually hit the drink making, I did get one email question that came in on a on a regular cooking related issue. Uh, Eddie Shepard from uh, the United Kingdom uh, emailed us, and he, he asked. He's a vegetarian. Uh, chef, and he wanted to know how to do umami without using uh, dashi or things like this. Well, you're in luck, Eddie, because uh, umami is basically a sensation we get from uh, protein breakdown. It's an actual sensation. You actually have taste receptors on your tongue that receive um, these protein breakdowns, typically, uh, you know, glutamic acid is the most famous one, an amino acid, but, you know, other things as well, and uh, they they tell your body that awesome broken down protein is coming in, Uh, but, and, and this is a lot of times signaled by meats. Uh, vegetarian, though, there's a lot of vegetarian things that are very high in umami, and they're things that vegetarians often crave. For instance, m- uh, cooked mushrooms, uh, uh, 
Parmesan cheese, anything aged with pro- any aged dairy product where it breaks down over time and forms uh, you know amino acids, free aminos, has a lot of umami in it. Tomato uh, has a lot of free umami in it, and you, you cook it and you concentrate it, and you, you can get it that way. So there's many vegetarian ways of uh, of getting umami. I am not above spiking things actually with monosodium glutamate. It's totally natural. Someone please call in and say that they're allergic to it, so I can have this discussion with you. Um, Anyway, the other question Eddie has, uh, real quickly, is, is sous vide useful for someone who doesn't do meat? Absolutely, Eddie. Uh, the low temperature isn't as important with vegetables, but the sous vide is great because it allows you to do things like uh, cook a carrot and have no flavor leach out and nothing go into it. So it kind of, you can use it to accentuate the, the actual vegetables, get the actual vegetable flavor in, uh, rather than uh, changing it. So that's our cooking-related question, and now we're on to beverages, Yes. Beverages? Beverages. Okay. So uh, we have a, a question coming in um, for Dave. Dave's working on a, a book now called... Uh, it's called uh, Punch the Delights and Dangers of the Flowing Bowl. Ah, right. And so, and so someone, uh, because we, we mentioned that he was doing this, uh, wrote in and said, uh, I, I see punch uh, nowadays more and more. Uh, I, you know, I see it all the time now. Uh, what do you think the, the state, the modern state of punch is and where, where do punches fit in in a modern cocktail menu? Uh, it's really cool to see, like, everywhere you go into, you know, sort of the state-of-the-art modern bars, and there are, like, tables of people sitting around a punch bowl, just like they were 200 years ago. It's kind of cool. It's very fun. Uh, but uh, I think right now people are sort of at the stage of figuring it out. They've made a couple classic recipes. They've got a very sort of simplified formula that's been passed down where it's, like, sour, sweet, strong weak spice five ingredients mixed together but there's kind of coming at it from a cocktail head and i taste a lot of these punches and they're they taste a lot like really big cocktails they're very very pungent and they're great for just a couple glasses but over the course of an evening like uh back in the day they would drink punch just you know bowl after bowl until they were all like rolling around on the floor utterly inebriated which you know we can't really get away with as much as we would like no exactly uh, (laughs) but nonetheless uh, i i think a lot of it is is just so pungent it's like having quail for dinner every day right you get tired of it after a while so is it is it that they is it that they don't follow the original recipe to get an idea for what the original is meant to be like and then build from there or is it just they're coming from a different perspective like i'm going to have one or two of these instead of I'm going to be quaffing these all night. I, I think people haven't have just really just started working with it, you know. And uh, for me, because of working on this book, I had to make many, many, many old recipes, and it took me a long time to realize that I was I was kind of doing it wrong from the old point of view. I mean, these modern punches are totally delicious. It's just they're very spicy and you know pungent. They put a lot of bitters and chartreuse and vermouth and herbal elements, etc., which work great in cocktails, but. You know, they kind of cloy after about uh, four or five small cups. Are, but, are they overly strong as well? Or? Uh, they tend to be pretty strong, too. But I think, you know, that's part... I'm sure that has to do with consumers, too. The consumers also expect something more like a cocktail. They don't expect this, this stuff. I mean, punch originally was like artificial wine. That's what people talked about it. So it would be, you know... Right now, the artificial wine is more like California Cabernet and less like Burgundy. And maybe... Uh, hopefully, over time, people will go a little more to the Burgundy side. Right, and of course, our idea of wine nowadays has been somewhat warped. Like we, we, you know, we're ex- we expect now like a fourteen percent wine yeah. instead of like a you know a twelve. Or yeah, a, and some of them are up less. to like sixteen, which is uh, yeah, right. You know, <laughs> they're getting into the cocktail. Yeah. Good good luck waking up the next morning <laughs> after a couple of bottles of that. Yeah. You know. Well, uh, well, this brings us actually to another uh, interesting question we had coming in about uh, dilution, and they're asking about the proportion of water in a cocktail. 
uh, and they want to know, you know, how the ice fits in and how the, you know, the ice breaks down. This is coming from Chris in Greenpoint. Just wanted to talk about, I guess, dilution and, and, and ice. Uh, and so why don't we take your take on it, Dave, and then, you know... Yeah, I mean, I, I know you've, for, got, you've got a lot of stuff about this, too. I could talk for a billion years on this, but uh, I, I won't, because it's only a 45-minute show. I mean, you know, the st- standard dilution for a cocktail, the rule of thumb every, everybody uses, is that uh, the shaking it or stirring it with ice should add 25% uh, to the volume, and thereby diluting it by, by that much. And, and that, you know, pretty much when I've measured it out, that is pretty good ballpark uh, measure, depending on the kind of ice you're using and so on and so forth. Right. I mean, for me, the interesting thing about that number is is that it's based on what? Based on just the liquor weight? I mean, like, you have drinks that have so many things in them. Oh, exactly. You know, or, yeah, because, you know, your simple syrup is not a liquor, your, your lime's not a liquor, your whatever you're adding in is not a liquor. I think, you know, having done a bunch of tests on, on dilution and ice and proportions, I think the... The best way to do it, to figure out what you like, is to uh, make a drink, weigh the base, make a drink, and then uh, weigh it afterwards and see how much water you added. I mean, it's, you know, that's the only way to figure it out. We did this. We found that we add that in a shaken drink, and this makes a lot of sense if you think about it. You yeah. want your shaken drink to be more diluted than you know, your Manhattan. You yeah, know? they're different classes of drinks. I mean, the shaken drinks are sours already. They're already right. more dilute. You've already got, as you said, you know, simple syrup and, and citrus juice in there. Right, and, and, and the interesting thing about stirred cocktails, if you look at it, is uh, how long would you say the average bartender stirs a, a cocktail? Maybe 20 seconds? Yeah. Something there. Now, uh, that's, that's, uh, that's even a lot. Right. I mean, it's, it's usually even, you know, like in the 15 range. Right, and, and what's interesting about stirring as opposed to shaking and dilution is that Shaking uh, does its dilution very fast. If, if, a, if a bartender shakes their drink for 15 seconds, they've probably they've made it to you know a- after that point that there's diminishing returns on chilling oh, yeah. and shaking. Oh yeah, and then, but in that's stu- even that's way too long. Also. Right? Yeah, but in stirring. Well, especially if you like a boozy drink, which I know yeah. you do. Yeah, well. <laughs> but the but the uh, in, in, we all have our weaknesses. Yeah, exactly, there. exactly. Well, we, turn, we have the same one, so it's lucky. <laughs> but the uh, in, in a in a stirred drink, it turns out that uh, it takes upwards of a minute to get to that same level of dilution as you would shaking for for fifteen to twenty seconds. So there's there's a lot uh, there's a lot more um, room for. Uh, error and room for artistry in stirring. Well, well, it also depends on what kind of ice you use for stirring. I use uh, I'll, I'll use like finely cracked or, or, or almost snow ice. Oh, you know? yeah. that's and that the dilution is fast in that, but it doesn't. It's not more than twenty five percent because it, it gets so cold instantly. Right. Yeah. Well, that's that's you know, stirring is all about surface. Like shaking is so violent that everything happens fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. Stirring, you can make it actually faster than shaking if you use fine enough. Fine enough ice. The, the the dilution and the chilling can be can be almost instant, but like if you notice, like uh, bartenders who want to have their stirring be more effective, they'll crack their ice as they're doing it. Yeah. And I thought that was a, a bunch of hokum until I realized that ice, you know, has a lot of water sitting on the outside of it. And when you crack ice right before you stir, you're getting more surface area, which makes for faster, uh, you know, uh, colder drinks. But you're doing it in a way that's not adding extra water because you are, you're making newer dry surfaces yeah, yeah, you're doing yeah. it. So it's actually a good practice to crack the big ice. It, it makes a huge difference. Uh, I mean, you can stir, as you said, with cubes. It takes like a minute. 
I, I find drinks stirred with like the large cold draft cubes that everyone's using nowadays take they, they never get as cold as I would like. Right, right. I mean, it, it's, you know, people need to think. People they they think big ice is the answer, and big ice is big ice. I mean, it's it's good at what it's good at, and it's bad at what it's bad yeah. at. It doesn't have a lot of surface area. It's not very fast at chilling. It's it's really good at filling up a glass. Yeah, and it's really good at like <laughs> keeping your your drink cold for a very long time without completely watering it down. But you know, the funny thing is studying like mixology in the in in, in the nineteenth century, if I can use that dreaded word mixology. Those guys then they got their ice in big blocks they had to butcher it up as needed they had different size ice for every kind of drink they had shavers so they could shave it right off the block and you know expose a new surface that would be dry shave that and put it in and so they they had a lot more flexibility than using just cubes out of a machine which so a lot of the the newest places are starting to to approach now sure like richie and Giuseppe yeah and the guys at varnish in in, yeah. in la i mean those guys are are really serious about using different sized ices for different effects and that's all it is it's a question of effects there's right. no no one answer for that right i mean um he, the, the funny the funny thing is is a lot of times you'll hear bartenders talk about uh, they'll, they'll give some kind of pseudoscientific reason for why x y and z works and it's like listen is your drink good Do you, yeah. yeah you know does the presentation good and you know that's pretty much it because i can get into the, the mm-hmm. science of it with them but often i find it doesn't necessarily help them make their drink any better well yeah i mean you know <laughs> you can have a drink that's scientifically good and still tastes like crap yeah exactly it's <laughs> unfortunately the case exactly exactly well uh that's a good question chris uh thanks for calling it in and you brought up uh the word mixology and i used to uh i used to actually kind of think it was bizarre because i you know it's the same thing with, with uh, people calling themselves chefs who aren't chefs I think there's a lot of honor in being a cook. I don't see anything wrong with the word bartender, but... What if you're not a bartender? That's right. <laughs> I, I, no, that's, exactly, that's exactly right. And also, it is an old word. It's not yeah. a new word. I think people don't necessarily know that. Mixology has a long history. Yeah, it goes back word. to the 1850s. And the funny thing about it, it was, it was coined as a joke. It was in a bit of like patter of you know, a, a guy calling him, um, the bartender a mixologist of typicular fixins, like, you know, like tipples. <laughs> right. And it was a joke. And I, I, I think that's kind of important to keep it, that joke aspect in mind. It's, it's not serious stuff. I mean, you can treat it seriously, but you can't treat it that seriously. You right. know, you sh- yeah. it still has to have that element of fun and play in it because otherwise it becomes work. And why would you want to, like, have your, your drinking be work. You know? Exactly. Well, well, I've come around to the word mixology. We could talk about a word when we come back that I've not come around to, molecular, because it's always people taking themselves too damn seriously, and it's an awful, terrible word, and please erase it from your food <laughs> and beverage memory. Uh, plus, a lot of the drinks aren't good. But uh, aside, aside from that, we, we, we'll talk about that when we get back. We're also going to talk about, uh, uh, what are we going to talk about, uh, Dutch distilled spirits? We can talk about that, and the craft distilling, I think, uh, is is another... Uh, big buzzword these days that we could uh, we could kick around a little bit. All right, so we're coming right back at you with uh, Dave Wonders. This is Cooking Issues. Oh, how you feel, brother? Feeling good. You feel good? Feeling good. It's so much bone, brother. How you feel, man? I'm feeling right. I call your name. I don't want no people to know you're in here. How you feel, brother? Hey, Jeff. Sure getting down. Look at him. We're gonna have a bump, good time. 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 Let's take them up, Fred. We gotta take you high. 
Listening to Cooking Issues. I'm Dave Arnold. Uh, we're here to answer all of your cooking and today drink-related questions. Please call in your questions to 718-497-2128. 718-497-2128. Uh, today we're here with uh, Dave Wondrich, and we are talking about uh, booze, right? Uh, so in, in, <laughs> in, in the last segment, we uh, we started in, um, and I won't spend, spend too long on this because anyone that knows me have heard, has heard me go off on this at great length. But uh, we were talking about mixology as a term uh, and how you know I've kind of come around with it. And Dave was making the excellent point that you kind of have to be lighthearted about it in, in order for it to work. Well, it should be fun in some way, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then uh, mo- molecular mixology, though, is a, a horrible thing, yes? Well, uh, you know, it's one of those uh, if-by-whiskey questions. It depends <laughs> on what you mean by molecular mixology. If you're making stuff that's new, different, fun, and not perhaps overly uh, pretentious, that's great. You know, if, if you're treating it like anybody behind the bar has to be in a white lab coat and measuring things by, you know, jewels or something, yeah. and, 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 and you're, you're in the presence of technological genius, so shut up and, and take your, eat, eat your cocktail or, you know, drink your appetizer or whatever, then it, then it becomes a little, a little much. Right. I mean, I think, the, the, you know, the operative word here is you say, you know, pretentious. You don't want it to be pretentious. I mean, I think that kind of like one of the best applications I've seen of this is, uh, you know, Tony, Tony Conigliaro. Is that good? Mm-hmm. My Italian that, batter? That's yeah. excellent. Yeah. Uh, at 69 Colebrook Row uh, in, uh, in London, you know, they use all the newest all the newest stuff, in fact, stuff that you know almost nobody else has, and yet their bar is completely unpretentious. You yeah, know, it's a normal bar. I mean, you can you know just go in. You could have a beer and be very happy there. They wouldn't make you feel weird about it. Right. I mean, they have a tranny yeah. band playing. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like, got it's got hospitality. It's got fun. It's yeah, got yeah, uh, that's a, good a little bit of uh, nightlife going on. So, right. Yeah. It, it's not Dave Wondrich's ultimate bar for for any listeners out there. Dave Wondrich's uh, ultimate bar has a rifle a rifle range in it, and you can shoot while you drink. This is like an Old. That's a 19th century standard. I mean, I would have to do what they did back then is they had uh, cute girls uh, as the sort of ru- who running the rifle range in the bars. And you would shoot uh, and try to beat their score, which drove the men nuts because those girls were all crack shots and right. the guys were all drunk. Right. And so they kept paying and paying and paying and trying and trying again to uh, to, to beat the uh, sober, uh, you know, dead eyes. Well, that's, <laughs> good, that's good business. <laughs> that's, that's good a, business, right? That's, it's the same as the uh, mechanical bulls now. Like yeah. you always have the, you know, the, the one woman tending bar who's extremely good at it. Yeah. You know, it makes <laughs> all the men look like idiots and then they line up to pay to, to get thrown. Yeah, because they know? don't want to get beaten by that itty bitty girl there. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. Well, you know, preying on male stupidity is is a growth business always. Oh yeah, always. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's never going to go dry. That <laughs> no, well, God no. That well is never going to get tapped. <laughs> uh-uh. Uh So um, okay. So uh, I don't know how we got into that, but 
So that's our take on molecular mixology. Keep it, keep it fun. Don't be pretentious. And also, you know what? Make some delicious drinks. Yeah, you know, I mean, one, one thing I see a lot with is right now it's sort of at the look at the, the, the tricks I can do with it. You know, let me make something that tastes like something else. I'm kind of waiting at, I mean, a martini only tastes like a martini, right? Right. And well, a Manhattan hopefully. only tastes like, oh, hopefully, right? Yeah. And a Manhattan only like a Manhattan. I'm waiting for molecular, molecular mixology or whatever we're going to call it now, a technological uh, bartending, uh, whatever, to, to come up with its drinks that are like that, that aren't just tasting like something else right you know and aren't playing around with like let me mimic this let me mimic that i mean for me i'm happy because you know this is what i for for those of you out here this is what i kind of do for a living uh and uh you know so i'm not poo-pooing it or make fun of it i mean this is how i make a living is using new techniques and a lot of it in cocktails and you know the goal should be uh to make something that has legs to make something that people want to have again and again yeah you know what i mean it's not like oh that's cute i'll have one (laughs) you know so you don't you know, say that to a martini. Right. <laughs> so, know. you know, Nastasha and I work on a drink that I think has, you know, legs, but it's no one would think of it as being, you know, a high tech cocktail. It's, uh, uh, you know, uh, either nectarine or peach, depending on the quality uh, uh, plum juice, those juices, plum juice, clarified uh, bourbon, a little water and, and simple. And, um, you know, this is a delicious. This is a delicious drink. Yeah, that clarified juice isn't easy, though. I mean, yeah, that's no. that's the key, it's, right? It, exactly. But to me, like that's good use of technology, yeah, right yeah, there. Yeah, I agree. That's a drink. People have that drink, and they say, "Hey, you know what? I would like another one of those." Instead of, "Hey, that's interesting. Can I have something else?" Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. and that's well, what you hope for. Such maturity with everything, you know. That's generally when it comes around to is people have like kind of played around and found the the little tricks that get them into it, and then they start taking it seriously. You right, know? and that's when you start getting interesting. stuff. Stuff. Right. I mean, nothing as long against, as it's yeah. not too serious, right. as we said. Right. Well, that's the thing. I mean, you know, it's yes, it should. I like it when people take their craft seriously, but they don't beat you over the head. They don't make yeah. you feel good or bad or you disguise know. the effort right. a little bit. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. All right. So uh, another thing I like to work on, and there's a lot of new both techno and retro going on now is distillation and i know you're really interested in this dave you don't want to talk about maybe the new movement for very like micro and craft distillation yeah this is this is something that's uh, spawned heated debate lately uh on on the web in person we all just got back from uh tales of the cocktail in new orleans the annual booze fest for sort of high-end uh, bartenders, mixologists, uh, and people who want to sell them things. <laughs> a lot of those. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, a lot of those. Yeah, uh, but, how much money do you think Pernod Ricard laid yeah, out for that Oh, thing? my God. Hundreds of thousands of yeah, dollars, yeah, yeah. it seems like. But uh, thank anyway. Thank you, Pernod. Yeah. Thank, yeah. <laughs> nicely done. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, uh, and, and this is one of the things that's like a perennial source of debate. Uh, it's uh, Right now, we're in the midst of this renaissance in small-scale distilling in the U.S. It turns out uh, laws have been liberalized. This is one good thing that... Uh, the Republican uh, hatred of regulation has brought right. us <laughs> to balance it against losing the Gulf and all that yeah, other yeah. stuff. Oh, well, yeah. at least we got booze. I, I, would, I would still say deregulation <laughs> has been a net loss. But. Yeah, but <laughs> at least we got micro booze. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, you know what happens? Uh, it, it, there, there are a lot of people who uh, have started up and they don't really have uh, they haven't spent years distilling. They haven't trained to do this. They're entrepreneurs. They buy some grain neutral spirit from Archer Daniels Midland. They put some botanicals in it, uh, you know, sort of what they heard goes into gin. They run it through the still that they've bought, gleaming new, you know, sort of steel still, some, maybe some copper plates inside. Right, right. And then they, they bottle it, and suddenly they're 
craftspeople. I mean, they're they're good business people. It's interesting, uh, but that's I don't think that's craft distilling. I brought an example that uh, we here in the studio can taste that you guys will just have to uh, either dream about or think of, see in your nightmares. Wait a minute, let me let me get the sound effect proper. Oh yeah, this is uh, from Holland from the Dutch Geneva Museum. Geneva being Dutch gin, which is sort of a it's actually a cross between gin and whiskey. And this is made from rye malt and barley malt and a little bit of juniper berry made in 18th century stills, completely crafted by hand by a guy who's been doing it for 15 years, only available at the museum. And it's utterly unlike anything you'll ever taste. Let's taste this. And then while we're, while we're tasting it, we have a question coming in, I think. Okay. Let's, let's taste it. Let's taste this. It is different. You can smell the... What's, what's the grain bill on this? Uh, it's... Uh, Two-thirds rye, one-third barley malt. Wow, it's really nice. It's grainy. It's totally smooth and clean. Right. It's silky. And the aged a little bit. Light. Botanicals way down. This is craft distilling. And, you know, the, a lot of this stuff is just not craft. It's delicious. It's interesting. But this, it, is this a, takes a real commitment, you know? Yeah, wow. This is done over, like, coal-fired stills. Uh, utterly, everything is done in the 18th century style. Everything is handmade. This is handmade by one guy. Let's give the name on this product again. Uh, this is a uh, Old Shidam Original Single Malt Geneva. You've got to go to uh, Shidam in Holland to get it. It's worth the trip. Cheers, Shidam. <laughs> Cheers. Uh, okay, we have a question. Who, who do we have on the line? Hi, this is Wendy from Brooklyn. Hey, Wendy. Hi. Um, I'm actually new to New York City, and um, I was wondering, Dave, if you could uh, <laughs> recommend any mixologists in the city who you really like. <laughs> There's so many. I mean, you, there, 10 years ago, there were about five bars where you could get a great cocktail in New York. Now there are at least 50. I mean, if you go to uh, Death and Company, uh, anybody there will make a great drink. Anybody will make a great drink at Pegu Club or PDT. I mean, these places all have programs now. It used to be you'd go there and you'd catch the good good guy or the good girl behind the bar and you'd get a good drink and then you'd go back the next time it'd be somebody else and it wouldn't but now like clover club in brooklyn uh, where do you live she's somewhere in brooklyn yeah somewhere in brooklyn she's yeah. still there do we still have her on the line no, uh, no. okay uh oh well because uh, you know now you've got options all over brooklyn too right uh there's there's 19th street in manhattan has a couple great bars uh, rye house is a new one that's fun and, and excellent. They're, they're, it, it, it's fantastic. I mean, it's a shame we lost her because the real operative question is what kind of drink do you like? What kind of experience yeah. do you like? Because there's so many, you know, it's, it's gone beyond, you know, you just sit down at a, people, people have created whole kind of the bar as, an, as a certain type of experience. You know, if you want, you know, Fontiki, we can get you now high quality Fontiki if you want, you know, it was yeah, whatever you, you want. You can go to Painkiller on the yeah. Lower East Side and have like a drink out of half pineapples and have, you know, the drink actually be carefully made by people <laughs> who uh, uh, don't just throw throw crap into a blender right. and, and dump it out again. That's just not usually my style, but, I, you know, we were there together and I had a good time. When yeah. I was there. yeah. Yeah, it was good. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, it, 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 it's, it's a real renaissance. This is, I mean, the golden age is certainly not since you know 1920 have we seen uh, anything this good and this is probably better than then too at least at the high end yeah so yeah. Mm-hmm. it's cool <laughs> all right so uh, uh wendy i'm sorry that we lost you um so uh let's talk more about this product cause i'm still drinking it so yeah i mean this is this is what like sort of craft 
entails is it's everything is done by hand small production they mash their own grain on the site they distill it three times in these ancient i think they're res- restored stills but they're built exactly you know to the ancient style uh it goes through the still three times and then gets stored in pits in the floor which was a fire prevention thing is you you, you keep your distillate below grade level yeah but distillation is actually dangerous it's actually dangerous <laughs> yeah and, and this is these are little tiny distilleries the way the dutch always did it they didn't have big mega distilleries they had lots of little ones and they all made more or less the same thing you know they had traditional ways and uh and you would buy your stuff on the spot market. Like, okay, your your gin is good. Your gin is maybe less good. We'll get the good one. But you know, they, that kept them competing to have the quality up. There weren't these big monopolies. Right. I mean, I wish you guys, uh, you know, could smell the nose on this thing because <laughs> it goes on forever. Yeah. No, I mean, it's really it's unique. It doesn't smell like any other spirit. It's not. Uh, you know, there there's nothing else like this. Uh, that's that's sort of what I want. What I hope to see from craft distilling is come up with stuff that I've never tasted before. Right. Come up with stuff that just is is so different and so cool. I mean, p- part of the problem with I think with cra- craft distillation, and I'm going to insult people who you know that I actually that I like people that I actually like. I'm about to insult them, uh, but not because I want to, just mm-hmm. because it's um, you know. People want to get into, for instance, the whiskey business, but they want to have product inside of a year. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, th- uh, those two, those two are not compatible. Yeah. You know, it's your business model is good for a business model. It's not good for a craft model. Right, but you know, but I think that they're they're. The desire is good. They just want to have product, but it's you know the the problem is is that that's why the, you know these are traditions that were built up over a long time, and some of them just take a long time yeah. to get it right. You know, and, and uh, I mean it takes years to age whiskey. At which point your capital is tied up, and it's that's uh, admittedly that sucks. But you know that is sort of what it takes to make like really you know a barrel aged well-aged spirits there's a lot of speed aging going on they'll put things in little tiny barrels and and kind of speed it up a little and that that can work it's just not you know the same as the those seasons in and seasons out of the 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 spirits going in and out of the wood as 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 it can uh, expands in the summer and contracts in the winter etc etc so right uh, i mean the proofs in the palate but I think that if you go and look, most of the time, you know, trained palates can they yeah. will pick out the ones that have been aged for longer. But but this stuff is you know this is coming. I mean the the the, the smart people and there are many of them uh, and the the good good craftsmen at this are, are, are they have stuff that's aging that you know in in two or three years is going to be out on the market. and It's going to be fabulous and that's going to be really exciting. It's just right now it's hard to get utterly excited about it for me because i have to taste a lot of this stuff professionally like blind tasting and you know it's you're competing against a pretty well established uh, bar a pretty high bar so right i mean uh, i know that when i you know when i do distillation i'm not really working on creating new like a new a new spirit or new or or even an old one i'm i'm more interested more interested in flavor, putting flavors yeah. into things. I mean, that's I think a different. That's a different. That's a different thing. process. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying I'm not saying there's skill involved, obviously, because sometimes I do a good job and sometimes I do a bad job, and you know I, I learn more every time I do a distillation run, and you know been doing it for you know uh, four years now or so, and it, you learn more all the time. But it's not the same. It's not the same thing. I'm trying to do something different. I wouldn't say it's in the same category as basically someone making this. Right, right. Jennifer, it's a different, 
it's a different thing altogether. Yeah, it, 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 but I mean, I would like to see more of that. You know, I'd like to see people making new spirits from grains that haven't been used before. I'd like to see people uh, uh, making handcrafted liqueurs from scratch. Right. You know, stuff like that. Uh, it, it, you know, using distilling their own base spirit, taking wine, making you know nice. Uh, Fresh brandy and then flavoring that with oranges and making like an old school orange curacao. Right, right. Everybody would use that. It's just I, I just don't see the need to kind of keep making gin and vodka right. the same way that everybody else is. <laughs> yeah, you know, oh, it's like oh. okay, but, that's all right. But you know, before we go to break, because we're gonna have to go to break in a second. You mentioned before they buy a lot of their straight liquor from Archer, Archer Daniel. Uh, I can't ADM. Yeah, and so uh, it. We just recently, you would love this. Next time you're at the French Culinary, where you know where where we are, mm-hmm. uh, we ordered from a chemical lab 200 proof ethanol. We ordered a, a crap ton of it. At, at check this out, we only paid uh, I think like 16 dollars a liter for it for 200 for 200 straight 200 wow. anhydrous alcohol. This stuff is primo. Has no yeah has, nothing right. It's no, just alcohol. Yeah no, but, and we diluted it down to 40. We were drinking. Yeah. God damn, this is sweet. This is like, the vodka you ever. Oh had. my god, it's the, no seriously, yeah. it's the best ever, and it's so cheap. Makes Smirnoff look spendy. It's so <laughs> cheap. Oh my goodness, uh, craziness. Yeah, that's anyway. really funny. All right, cooking issues coming back at you in a couple minutes. <laughs> Issues on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm the host of Cooking Issues, Dave Arnold, uh, calling with all of your cooking and today drink-related questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. You still have some time to call in. We have Dave Wondrich in the studio. Dave Wondrich uh, has won a zillion awards, both for his magazine writing and for the, uh, you know, he's written, of course, the Esquire cocktail books, or several of them. How many of those editions? Well, I, I actually only wrote one of them, but... That was the last one. So. Okay, all right. The one yeah. I have, anyway. Yeah, you, have, yeah. you wrote the one I have. Yeah. And, uh, you know, wrote Imbibe, which was... Well, actually, before we go into what you're working on in uh, 
you know, at the moment. Why don't you talk a little bit because Imbibe was kind of a landmark cocktail book. And uh, you know, and it was it was had kind of a unique premise for cocktail books. Well, it was sort of the right book at the right time. Uh, Imbibe is is uh, purportedly a biography of Jerry Thomas, who wrote the first Bartender's Guide. But since he was a bartender, you know, the materials I had enough materials at the time to maybe write thirty pages of good biography, and then the rest was uh, I talked about his drinks and where they came from and all the tools that that he would have used and his fellow bartenders. And then I had just chapters of recipes uh, with, I gave the original recipe and then kind of talked about how I would go about recreating them. And that actually, before Imbibe, there had been a lot of fabulous cocktail books, but I think Imbibe was one of the first books written acknowledging that fact. You know, it was like, okay, you already have the wonderful basic cocktail books. You already have a couple vintage cocktail books. You've already got Dale DeGroff's Craft of the Cocktail, uh, Gary Regan's Joy of Mixology. Both excellent books. Both excellent books. Ted Hayes' uh, Vintage Spirits and Forgotten Cocktails. You've got those. So this is for those people, you know, so the people who already have an overview. And it was kind of let's get back deep into detail into the 19th century, find out what is discoverable about how American bartending evolved and became what it is. And, uh, you know, I was, I was the right guy at the right time for that, I guess. Well, I think it really hit a chord because, you know, there's so many people in the cocktail world who, um, you know, the, the mode for a, long, for a long time, for the past eight years, let's say five, five to eight years in cocktail world of people who actually knew what the hell was going on was, to kind of, was a kind of recapturing of lost knowledge and yeah. a, a hunger for history, I think. And, uh, but those people didn't have anyone doing any actual modern scholarship on it. You know, you had a, a couple of older books like uh, the, the, what was that called? The Wild? West, yeah, Wild West bartenders, yeah, Bible or something, right, yeah. which, is a, which is a good book, good but, book, yeah, yeah, uh, a lot of kind of bad histories also, but uh, I think people were really kind of hungering for this sort of book, and so I think it just hit the right chord. Well, I, I think the the one really good decision I made on that book was to address technique in detail, you know, and instead of just giving the recipe, I broke each one down, talked about the techniques to execute it, the ingredients at some length, you know, I just went on and on about this stuff, but it. it walks people through the the recipe rather than just saying go figure it out yourself we've given you the tools i, I think that actually was helpful to 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 a lot of bartenders because I, I go to a lot of bars and i do see it behind the bar which is very flattering and means that i can uh, try to twist their arms into getting free drinks right well it's ext- you know it's extremely well received book at least in you know in the circles i i, I run in uh you know I, I have it i've read it i like it a lot thank uh, you but uh so now you're coming off this book. This book, maybe was that three years ago? Three years ago, yeah, 2007, yeah. end of 2007. Okay, so you're coming off of this book, and this book is a, about a very deeply American subject. And, you know, the, the history is really, you know, the, it, it's very it's very American feel book, right? And then yeah. you're, you're coming off of that, and now you're working on Punch, and Punch is a little bit different, right? Yeah, I mean, or, originally I had a, a huge chapter on Punch Bowl drinks in the Jerry Thomas manuscript, and my manuscript is way too long, and my editor said, you know, we can't publish this, it's way too long, you got to cut something, and I looked at it again, and I said, you know, none of these punch bowl drinks turn up in, like, old newspapers uh, about American drinking, and it turns out, you know, they were probably put in there by Jerry's publisher just to, to kind of make the length, and he didn't really engage them in any way, and I realized that's because they were really English drinks, so once I cut that book, it gave that part, it gave the Jerry Thomas book focus, but it also kind of gave me my next book, because i got to go back and deal with this stuff. And this is a 
story that kind of that takes me much back back into England and British. I guess you could call it the British invention of mixology, uh, of of mixing strong drinks based on spirits, and it really comes out to have been a a British innovation and uh, this invention of punch or discovery of it. Nobody like the martini. Nobody will ever know exactly how it came to be. But you can certainly figure out the conditions under which it was created, mostly sailors running out of wine and <laughs> beer and needing something now. <laughs> and so what era are we talking about? Uh, we're talking about? the early 1600s, maybe the very end of the 1500s. Right, so, you know, back, before, back yeah. before we were us anyway. It's not like we couldn't have invented it. No, no, we just didn't get the chance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they, and, and, you know, and it was certainly uh, very popular in America before it was popular in Britain. But uh, the sailors, it was, it was English sailors as far as I can tell, although it could possibly have been dutch ones too right, right we won't talk about that right but like dutch in the actual dutch sense not dutch meaning bad or fake yeah no no yeah, yeah. real 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 <laughs> real che- cheese eating hollandaise yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. uh now the um uh about, just about punch for a second maybe you can talk a little bit you know the uh about the the pop kind of fake etymology you said it was fake that punch means only that punch comes from fire. yeah i mean there, there's this idea that uh punch comes from the indian word for five uh which is, you know, punch is like Hindustani because punch has five ingredients, uh, strong, you know, spirits, water, citrus, sugar, and spice. Now, often it had four ingredients, often it had six ingredients. So that's, put that beside the thing, uh, put, the, put that to the side. There's also, it only, this comes back to one guy's theory who was a classical scholar who visited India in the 1680s, you know, almost like 60, 80 years after punch was invented. And he says this, because he seemed uh, learned, it gets picked up and becomes orthodoxy, and nobody ever really questioned it till a, a guy in like around 1900, working for the Oxford English Dictionary, put out an article saying, "You know, this is maybe a little bit fishy." Huh. Uh, and I, I only found that article after I'd been sort of come to the same conclusion. So I was very pleased to find it. But well, it, it must really be fishy because the OED, as great as they are, has always sucked with food etymology yeah, anyway. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? And this guy's art this guy put out this article because they wouldn't use his theory in in the dictionary. Oh yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, and he he questions it pretty pretty strongly as as you know, it's like why the English didn't mangle sudden so, somehow didn't mangle this one word out of all the words that they've mangled. You know, it's like okay, there's that. There's the fact that punch was a, an English word for kind of round things in general and bowls, etc. There's there's all kinds of stuff. Uh, so one really does uh, ha, has grounds to to, to question that etymology. Uh, it, it certainly shouldn't be printed as like gospel truth and moved on from as it is. Uh, so it, it's it's a tangled tale. The history of punch. It's, it's, it gets very complicated. There are lots of byways and, and, and uh, interesting factors that have barely re- been researched. So okay. I'm sure somebody will write a book that will uh, prove that everything I say in mine is wrong. Right, before we look have, forward to it. Before we go, I realize that we've been talking about punch, but we haven't really told people who don't know what the hell punch is, who think it's Hawaiian punch maybe, what, what punch is and kind of like, you know, let's give a quick, because like, they're yeah. going to make us leave soon, let's give them a quick hit of what it is and then let's talk about a couple of recipes maybe to give people an idea. Oh, easy. Now, originally punch, you know, we think of it as like frat house punch where you dump a bunch of stuff into a garbage can or then there's like the the food magazine punches with lots of sparkling wine and sliced fruits and they're very pretty and nice and and delightful but punch was originally as serious as a martini i mean it was uh liquor and very strong flavorful liquor at that uh water 
sugar, citrus juice, nutmeg, uh, tea, various spices, all put up in a bowl. Ice came later. Uh, a very easy way to make punch. Um, well, actually, my favorite way is you peel uh, three lemons with a swivel-bladed peeler, right? And put the peels, to try to get as little of the white pith as possible, right. put them in a bowl. Put in six ounces, uh, you know, three quarters of a cup of super fine sugar. Muddle them up together and let it sit for an hour. And you'll find that the lemon peel uh, pulls out, uh, the, the sugar pulls out all the oil from the lemon peel over that time. And you get this thick lemony paste that's delightful. Then add six ounces of lemon juice. Stir it up. Uh, pour in a bottle of cognac. Or uh, you can put in uh, dark rum, navy rum, all kinds of good stuff like that. Uh, ice and about a quart of water, right. great nutmeg on the top, and you're done. Done, and it's and really, it's all about the fellowship. It's all about sitting around with your friends, everybody drinking the same thing, sharing it, talking about it, uh, talking about whatever, and, and making sure you don't leave anything left in the bottom of the bowl. All right, well, you know, you can pre-batch certain aspects of your of your punch and make, for instance, you can make a batch with the with the citrus called. Shrub. shrub, yeah, you right. can leave the liquor out and 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 the water. Leave the liquor and, and most of the water out, and you can bottle it, and it will keep for a long time. Right, and well, it ha- but it has a different flavor from fresh. It's an aged flavor. It's a different flavor. The yeah, shrub. And yeah, it's not quite as sharp and, and bright, but it, 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 if you let the solids settle out uh, and and strain it, you'll get something that's pretty mellow and right. tasty. And by the way, not worse, just different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, you know, but for all of those recipes, you, I'm, I apologize. You will have to purchase his book, which is coming out. <laughs> it's coming um, out November second yeah. from. Uh, Perigee books. Uh, you could probably pre-order sooner than that on Amazon, and yep. I, I encourage you to do that. Uh, we have one more question that we're going to leave with, but uh, before we, we're going to actually leave on the question. So, because uh, it's a good one, it's always a, a good one to answer, and I want to hear Dave's answer as well. Uh, but you have been listening to Cooking Issues today, brought to you by the Whole Foods uh, Whole Foods uh, Market. But here's the question we're going to leave the show on. Uh, it comes from Phil and uh, Dave. If you go to a, I'm going to read this verbatim. Okay. If, you go, if you go to a crappy dive bar and your date wants a cocktail, what are the safe cocktails to order? Well, I'll, I'll get. I'll, I'll say what my uh, wife Karen always ordered, which works incredibly well: uh, Myers on the rocks with a splash of pineapple juice. There you go. Done. Done. Finished. Contains its own instructions. <laughs> All righty. <laughs> well, Dave. thanks. Thanks for coming in. Well, Dave. thank you so much. And this is uh, fun. Thank. Well, come again, please. You've been listening my to pleasure. Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network. Vicious, vicious. Oh, you dirty rat Got me on this corner And I don't know where I'm at Supposed to meet my baby I'm 20 minutes late You got my head all twisted And I just can't get it straight 